Please remain standing and turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We'll be going to uh, verse 10, actually. Verse 10, starting in verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Blessed be God's word. You may be seated. It's hard to communicate today. It's hard to prove something new to someone now. It's often hard to talk to people who are in our world about things because they seem to speak their own truths and speak them with such conviction. Why is it hard to prove things? And what do we do when we're talking to people who are convinced of lies, as the heretics in Second Peter are convinced of lies? For Second Peter's recipients, this was a problem for the common believer, as heretics spoke around him and her all of these lies about the Christian life and Christian redemption. These, these heretics spoke with such conviction, and oftentimes we see this in our own day. They said that if, if you had Christ as Savior, then you need not worry about the rest of your life. You could be your own Lord. What ought we to do in the face of heresies? Ought we to huff and puff at these things and walk away? Peter tells us here, no. Heresies ought to be opposed tooth and nail. However, we should oppose them. With Scripture, they ought to be opposed with proof of their error from Scripture. When the church was less pure and more infected with error, she didn't engage heretics with proof of their error from Scripture. She simply burned them at the stake. But Peter, the first one in the Christian world, in Christian history, to use the word heretic in this way, actually comes back with them with Scripture. These people blasphemed God. He does not call for their head. He calls them to repentance and proves what is true from Scripture. And what proof? Proof from nature, here do we see? Or proof from my own convictions and my own brain? Or proof from some so-called common sense? No, although these things are not wrong to bring to the table, what Peter brings to the table is the only infallible truth and proof that Christians can bring in the witness of Scripture, which is itself. Scripture is brought to bear. 
So as we turn to our passage, it ought to strike us even more that Peter, although he is an apostle of the living God, an instrument to write God's words as he has already said, does not simply say, this heresy is evil, I condemn it, and ends the argument. No, God moved Peter to prove his position from the Old Testament as an example for us of what we are to do. God moved Peter to oppose these heretics in a way that instructs us how we are to do it ourselves. We prove things especially by going to Scripture. We are scriptural because it is infallible, the only infallible thing that we have. So as we go into our passage, he starts to prove what he said before in verses 1 through 3. To remind you, Peter said that Christians cannot confess Jesus as Savior without also confessing Christ as Lord. These heretics lived a life that was scandalous and blasphemous, a life as they pleased by their own will, but they confessed, blaspheming all the way, that Christ Jesus is my Savior. Well, they lived in open, unrepented sensuality and greed. Peter has told us that Christ will be our Savior only if he is also our Lord. Now, Peter is establishing, he is proving that Christ must be Savior and Lord. And Peter is proving that destruction necessarily comes upon the people who sin in the face of God, who calls them to repentance. Those people who do not have him as Lord, do not confess him as Lord, as they refuse his lordship. So to Christians who say that God's word is the final authority upon which it touches, regardless of how heretics assail it, to these Christians, Peter's following argument ought to be persuasive, because God does not change. Peter first discusses what was a running theme in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, the destruction of the wicked. So first, first point examples of the immutable God's sure destruction of the wicked in the Old Testament, or simply examples of sure destruction by God in the Old Testament. In 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter says destruction three times and uses the word condemnation once in those three short verses. Peter summarizes the point of his argument against heretics in the words of verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter goes about proving this now. Uh, This will be a swift judgment. And in fact, their condemnation is from long ago, as he proves from the Old Testament. But the first example he uses from the Old Testament is angels. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until... The judgment. This is the first if question and the first example from the Old Testament. Angels argue especially the necessity of judgment for sin, regardless of status, as we will discuss. It argues especially the necessity of judgment for sin, regardless of status. But before we get into the example itself, since we're talking about events that happened long ago, as Peter says in verse 3, when did this sin take place? This is referring to an event that don't, we don't have explicitly set down in the Old Testament, but it is an, evident, it is an event rather which we know happened, even if this scripture did not say when it happened. That is, the fall of many of the angels from God's pleasure and presence before the fall of man was known from ancient times. 
It's known even as you see it in Genesis. Satan, an angel, was the one who sinned in tempting the Adam and Eve, the first parents that we have. He was an angel. He sinned in tempting them and therefore sinned before Adam and Eve did. Therefore, interestingly, the first sinners were angels. That is very strange for us to think on, but it's very helpful in this. That they were the first is probably part of the reason that Peter speaks about them first here. The first sinners had absolutely no mercy from God. Let's not dismiss this. It's actually quite important. God gave no mercy to angels. Once they sinned, they went to hell immediately. God promises no mercy to them. Once the angels fell, they were immediately judged. Why is this important? Notice that angels are called in verse 10, the glorious ones. And Peter calls them greater in might and power to us humans. In verse 11, this is the point that Peter is making. If even angels were judged immediately for sin, then why would he not judge us humans, sinful humans, for our sins, who are by nature further from God, the glory of God, and now after the fall, sinful by nature? Remember, the heretics said that having Christ as Savior was all you needed. You could live as we pleased otherwise, without any understanding of Christ as Lord, because God does not care about sin any longer. But Peter says, if God certainly judged angels, then why would he not judge heretics who are lesser in glory and power and might? Peter is saying, whatever your status in this life, in this world, if you are a king, a pastor, an angel, or a homeless man, it does not matter. Whatever your status is and closeness to God, sin must be judged. Sin must be judged regardless of status. If sin is present, it does not matter if you're an angel. He hates it, and he will judge it. And not only did God judge sin as if he slapped the hand of this glorious cre- his creation, his angels, no, what he did was he sent them to hell. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. This ought to be a warning to all of us. To everyone who sins and thinks sin is not important to God or is a small thing, every sin is worthy of hell. God judges, period. He judges sin, period, and he cannot do otherwise. Now, second, he brings up Noah in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. By the way, this is really it's a very interesting example. Peter loves to speak about the flood. This was a, an ancient world that is gone now, completely gone, except for the eight people that came through it by, by God's mercy. Uh, things that are, that are potentially is- interesting to us, and yet... God killed all of them and destroyed those cultures because they were sinful. This example is the ultimate refute of the claim, everybody's doing it. At that day, everybody indeed was doing it. They were sinning. This is no defense for sin. Yes, God knows that everybody's doing it, and you're worthy of judgment. This is why he brings it up. 
Even many other people you res- who are, you respect, if they are doing it, it does not matter. It does not make it right. As we quickly go to the third example, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, we will speak about Noah at a later time. Verse 6 through 9. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah should be fairly understandable in that they are examples of God's judgment and the worst evil imaginable all over scripture. It's not for nothing that Jesus used Sodom to show just how wicked his generation was in Matthew 11, saying, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Capernaum is even more sinful than Sodom. And he says in this next verse, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It's also used as an image of judgment, God's fire and brimstone literally being shown. Peter's proving that God's judgments against sin did not just end with Noah's flood with that world, but are indeed in our world now. No, in fact, he says in verse 6, he has condemned to extinction entire regions of the earth for their sinfulness after the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them were condemned, all of them, but Lot and his family. And why? Peter tells us to make them an example of what is going to happen, going to happen, so this is especially in the future, to the ungodly, the judgment of God. So as we conclude this first section, which is the first part of his argument, we've proven that the Father does not take status into account when judging sin, He hates sin as sin, and he judges sin, period, however large or small it may be, or whatever world you may be coming from. Whether you are an angel or man, he hates sin. Peter has proven that there is no excuse for sin, and God is willing to kill entire worlds for the sake of the judgment of sin. In this time and in the ancient world, there is no excuse for sin that Jesus will accept. You'll notice Peter has started each of these examples with the word if. Verse 4, if God did not spare angels. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world. And verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. Verses 4 through 8 were the first part of an if-then statement, an argument. Peter has used these three if statements as points in his argument. But to prove what? What is the then on the other side of this if-then construction? What's the conclusion to the argument? Verses 9 through 10. Then, he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. As we get into the second section, God's rescue of the righteous amidst judgment. Verses 7 through 10, God's rescue of the righteous amidst judgment for sin. He concludes his argument with two things. First, God rescues the godly from trials. Two truths. First, God rescues the godly from trials. 
God killed nearly everyone in the ancient world. But who did he save? He saved righteous Noah and his family, a herald of righteousness. And God killed nearly everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah. But who did he save? He saved righteous Lot and his daughters, verses 7 through 10. And Lot is really quite instructive in this passage, as well in how we should understand the word righteous. Lot was not a man of good sense. He was a fool. He had very many stupid things and many sinful things. In fact, he sinned gravely in Genesis 19, a story I will simply point out to you to read for yourself. It is so horrifying. But Lot is called righteous in three times in these verses by Peter. Why? Because for all his foolishness and all his sin, he hated sin from the heart. Verses 7 through 8 reveal this. Greatly distressed was Lot by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot was in the midst of unrighteousness, as these true Christians that Peter is writing to are in the midst of unrighteousness and heresy. His soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. These are convicting words, by the way. Do you hate the sin that you see in the world? We have great amounts of sin around us. Do you hate the sin that is in the world? Or are you apathetic? They cannot use the sinfulness around us as an excuse for our own sin. Lot, although an idiot, has this much over us Americans. He cared about sin and sinners. Although we can rightfully hate Lot's sin, and we ought to, let us also hate sin like Lot. As Christians hate sin, a Christian is not sinless, just like Lot was not sinless. A Christian hates sin because of the righteousness of Christ given to him. And therefore we can call Lot righteous because he trusted in Christ. Christians hate our sin. Like taking the Lord's Supper, it's not the sinner who is barred from it. It's not the sinner who is barred from the Lord's Supper. Or else no one would, could partake of the Lord's Supper but Christ alone. It is not the sinner who is barred from the table or barred from salvation. It is the unrepentant sinner who is barred from the table. Who are the unrighteous? They are the people who have their self as their God and will only live upon their own way unrepentantly. They are there, those people who think they own the Lord or who are their own lords and will have, not have Christ as their Lord that they are so unrepentant in their sin that they, th- they call it good. Why would they repent to God when they are above him? But to this unrepentant Peter, unrepentant sinner, Peter has this to say. Second, the unrighteous are under punishment and they will be punished, as he says in verse 9. To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to do this. This is what he proves. The The unregenerate, the unrighteous are under punishment even now. They will not only be judged in the last day. How is this the case? The simple answer is that they're sinning. Sin is misery. Misery is the result of sin. God judges them currently by allowing them to indulge in their sin. These unrighteous are under the punishment of God, most often by them continuing in their own sin, which makes them miserable in this life. 
and eternally miserable in the next. One of the worst judgments that God can give us is to leave us to our own sin and therefore have great misery without any inclination of repentance or hatred. Just like the angel who lost their glory after they sinned and went down into the chains of gloomy darkness of hell, so the person who sins on earth creates a hell of his own making. Although the last degree of torment for sin is future for the wicked. Where sin is, even now, there is misery. What does Peter say that those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions are? Why does he say that they are especially under the current punishment of God, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions? And why does Peter say that those who despise authority are especially under the current punishment of God? I must say we will do these things in the next sermon. Uh, He speaks about these things more clearly there, so we will have to skip over those things. But I bring those up to you so that you can read it yourself and we can discuss it. Through all this, through all this sin that swirls around us, God saves us is his point here. We will have temptations. We will indeed have trials. The devil indeed will oppose us. The world will oppose us and we will sin. But be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who trust in Christ Jesus in faith. God has provided a way of salvation, just as he provided a way of salvation for righteous Lot and a way of salvation for righteous Noah. Not only can Jesus bring us by his power out of hell, he can bring us out of every temptation and every sin. He has proven it time and time again with his power in the Old Testament. Lot is like many of us, sinners among sinners, bumbling about here and there, and yet even Peter calls him righteous three times because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. He trusted in Christ. He is righteous and displays his righteousness, that union with Christ through his hatred for sin and his repentance. He does not buy his righteousness through those things, but he displays the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, given to him by Christ in his hatred for sin. Among all our sins, how can we escape the judgment of God? We have only one way of escape, brothers and sisters, as we conclude. Jesus took the punishment of those who deserve fire and brimstone, the the punishment of God's wrath, and what's more, gave them a new heart, which works for his glory in gratitude and love. A heart of stone the heart of wrath, which we all had by nature, which we all have by nature, and for those who are Christians, no longer have. When we are conceived in our mother's womb, cannot work any good works. We, by nature, cannot do good works. We are, by nature, wicked like Sodom and Gomorrah and worthy of wrath. A heart which does not have love of God and hatred for sin is not a heart displaying the work of God in them. And if you are one of them, you must go to God in prayer, in his word, which cuts deeply into the heart and is more powerful than we can understand and is actually alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are doubting whether you love the Lord, then go to him in prayer and in the word. And as he has been saying throughout all 2 Peter, do the works that you did at first, and you will be encouraged. Do you desire life?
Go to scripture and see Christ in every page. Doesn't Peter here? He proves his position, but he sees the salvation of Christ in Lot and Noah. They were not saved by works, but they trusted in the promises of God that were given to them to escape, to escape with their life. As Peter said in 1 Peter, Christ is our ark, raising us above the seas of the waters of God's wrath. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, in reference to the flood, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ which saves us. And what does it save us from? Does it save us merely from his wrath? Yes, it does, but his wrath against sin, brothers and sisters. What does Paul have to say? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and where are you? You are still in your sin. Wrath comes upon us because of sin. God must judge sin, regardless of status. And now that we are without sin, by faith in the blood of Christ, we have been raised with Christ to newness of life. We love Christ, and we love his way of life. More and more in in degrees, Paul says in Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. To walk in him is to not only walk in his example, yes, but to walk with the new heart that he has given us and to walk with the Holy Spirit as our Savior, Lord, and only refuge from sin and the hell of sin. Let us give proof of who we are, just as Peter proved the faith of Noah and Lot and the fate of the wicked through repentant faith and hatred of sin. Let us walk in the way of Jesus, trusting to him our salvation in the midst of a world under judgment for their own sin. Trusting the Lord when he tells us this, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, even the trials of our own sins. Let us know that Jesus Christ, through faith, is our only Savior, is our way of salvation through Christ, and therefore know him as our only Lord, He is faithful. He knows who are his, and let us depend upon him. His power, while we all the while do what is right in his power, hate, sin, repent, and seek him in his word and prayer, just as necessarily as Jesus must judge sin, so just as necessarily must those who truly believe be saved from judgment by faith in Christ. For he has covenanted with Christ just as much as he must destroy sin. He will save those who have faith in Christ and have been united to Christ. And a life of love will flow from these people, from the heart of love that he implants within us infallibly. So Peter has proved here. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and sin. Sin has no power over us Christians. If you have faith in Christ, Christ has power over you as well. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Let us flee sin until he comes, and sin no more until sin is no more. Let us go to our great God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we are saved by faith alone. And through faith, you give us a new heart, a heart which hates sin. And so we prove ourselves to be among your righteous people through living a life of faith. 
through confessing what is true, confessing that you are Savior and Lord, that your work is the work which saves, that your work is being done within us, even to do, to will and to do for your good pleasure, good works for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would make us to hate sin. Lord, that we would see that sin is hateful to you, that you have judged sin in every case. We pray, Lord, that we would look upon Jesus and look upon the cross and see the sin that we have done upon the cross, that we would confess our sin and be repentant before you. Lord, that we would come to you for fellowship, knowing that we are sons of God, that we would do so with confidence. Confidence in your mercy. Confidence that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would worship you for the rest of this day and forevermore. And we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.